You're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast, making death and dying something we can all talk about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Art of Dying Well podcast. James Abbott here, as always. Now, this podcast has the provocative title, Listen to Me, I'm Dying. Tell me more, I hear you ask, or at least I hope that's what you're asking. So what we're going to do today with our guest contributors is ask the challenging question, how much of a say do I have over what happens when I die? Will my wishes be respected? What about those emergency situations when I might change my mind over what happens next? Just like birthing plans at the start of life, shouldn't we all have a plan for how we exit this world so we can be as reconciled and at peace as possible? That's the first subject. Into the mix, we're looking at an interesting piece of research as well, carried out in partnership with the Centre for the Art of Dying Well, to examine the impact of the digital world on death and grief. Intriguing, isn't it? So, let's get to it. I'm very pleased to introduce our first guest, Professor Julia Riley. Julia, our regular listeners may remember, joined us on episode 25, Diagnosing Dying, one of our most listened to episodes, actually. Delighted to welcome you back, Julia. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me on again. Well, it's a delight, particularly because you were posting very big numbers on our last podcast. So it's a total joy to have you back. And making his first appearance on an Art of Dying Well podcast is Dr. Sean Qureshi, a specialist in palliative medicine who's been researching the medicalization of dying and grief, amongst other things, in the post-digital age. Now, that's that's going to be one to explore. Good to have you with us, Sean. Hello, James. Good to be here. Lovely to have you here. Now, Julia, we'll start with you. Obviously, you're the one of the brains behind the Coordinate My Care initiative. And that's about taking control somewhat, isn't it? So I'm going to start by asking you, what is Coordinate My Care? And how does it empower people who are dying and and potentially their family members? So Coordinate My Care is what it says on the tin. It coordinates the care that I have chosen. And we set it up when my 32-year-old sister-in-law died. She had four young children, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a pair of newborn twins. And as she was dying, there were two things she wanted. She did not want to go to hospital, and she did want to stay at home. And she had malignant melanoma, which had spread to her brain. And as a result, she had a lot of headaches and extreme pain. And every time she called for help, she had been looked after by the hospice, the community palliative care service, tertiary referral centre, her local DGH. And every time she called for help, nobody knew what the last person had said. And the default was to take her to hospital. Well, with a young family, every time she has to go to hospital, my brother needs to call somebody to come look after the children so he can go with her. And it was utter chaos. And although she did die at home, we went through so many struggles and hurdles in spite of the fact that my brother is highly articulate and I was in the field of palliative care. When she died, we set up I was chairing a palliative care forum for consultants across south of the Thames in London. 
And I suggested, why don't we have a single plan? And when people are dying, they create a, a paper plan with their doctors and nurses. And that, that took about 18 months until all the hospices, all the hospitals, all the GP representatives agreed to what would go into the questions for the single plan. Following that, it became the paper plan became a fax, and the fax was sent to all the urgent care services, and the urgent care services then knew what to do with the patient. It was a revelation. Following that, it was developed into a digital care plan, which sends a message to all the urgent care services, like the London Ambulance, where it puts a flag onto the London Ambulance service, and then London Ambulance knows when that patient or their family calls from that address or any of the telephone numbers for on that plan, they know there is a plan and they deliver the care in the plan. And the next step was then to say, okay, well, we've now got a great plan and it works. And our outcomes for people dying in hospital were much better. Before the pandemic, 47% of people died in hospital. During the pandemic, it went down to 43. But if you had a plan, it's down to 20. So we more than halved the people that are enabled to die at home because the people caring for them know in real time what that patient has chosen. And the last part of the development is now to develop a MyCMC, which is a patient portal where the patient goes in, they create their own plan online, and we, we're just redeveloping it and, and relaunching it. And this part of MyCMC not only goes on to do your plan when you're dying, but your plan when you have died. So the last part of the development is when you die, you have chosen a particular person to give your details to. When you die, the computer sends a code to that person to open up your plan and you can get all your funeral plans, your will, things you might have wanted to say and couldn't bring yourself to say, photographs you want them to keep, and a whole messaging service. So the idea is to digitally take out of a person's mind and body and spirit what they really want at the end of their lives, what's really important to them, and share that so that the people who are actually going to have to look after them deliver that care. That's wonderful. And and so it's one of those things, I guess, where you think, wow, I'm really surprised that that didn't exist in the first place or, or back further than that, you know, which is marvellous. Quick question now, and this I'm going to ask you as well, Sean, but I'll stick with you, Julia. How do I make those important end of life decisions? And this is the bit I'm going to ask you in, in a sec, Sean, but for you, Julia, and how important are medical practitioners in that process? I think that that is the essential question the NHS should be asking. Because if you ask the NHS and you ask GPs and you ask nurses, they all say these are decisions that should be made by the medical fraternity. I think this is a social and cultural issue. And I think people should be making these decisions themselves. And the, the professions, the medical and nursing professions, should be supporting them to deliver what they have chosen. So for me, it's a social and cultural change because 
you know, at the end of the day, dying, it has a medical element to it, but it, in latter years, it has become completely medicalized. When in fact, the most important thing when a person is dying is their spiritual well-being, be that religious or not, their social well-being, their families, their friends, and how it impacts on the larger community. And that then diminishes how important the medicalization becomes. Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting point, actually. I might play devil's advocate with you, Sean, a little bit and say, with that in mind, though, how do I listen to the medical practitioners to take what is useful and what is necessary, in a sense, to inform my decision? And how much do I make of my own volition, as it were? Where, where is that sort of point between the two things, being informed by the medical profession and also having the choice and control to make my own mind up? Yeah, well, it's certainly very uh, challenging and not straightforward. And I mean, I agree with everything Julia said. You know, I think there's a lot of overlapping themes with the the research that I've been doing recently as as part of the Center for the Art of Dying Well. Um, but I think, you know, as Julie has said, you know, it's not just about individual practitioners and their attitudes. We have a whole system which really centers the doctor or centers healthcare workers in people's experiences of dying you know if it's the person with in life with life limiting illness that we're talking about or centers the doctor in people's experiences of pre-bereavement and grief as well where it's a lot about what resource and capacity we have available in our healthcare systems to be able to give people time and space to be able to communicate things over a period of time to be able to come back give people time to think about things and come back to them and you know one of the things as far as I understand about, you know, coordinate my care, which Julia has has explained is that there's is an, an explicit acknowledgement in that as well, that people have space to change their minds over time as well, because the way people feel about these things aren't going to be static. Um, and I've often found, you know, if you, you may be speaking to someone who has a diagnosis of a life limiting illness, but there's still maybe several weeks or even months before they're, they're actually going to be at the very end of their lives. So at that stage early on, even though they already have that diagnosis and they do already know that they unfortunately aren't going to survive their illness, it's still quite difficult for people to get their heads round when you start introducing ideas about where you want to be at the end of your life. Do you want to be admitted to hospital if you have an acute infection? Do you want to be resuscitated? How someone thinks about those things, how someone answers those questions is very different compared to if you ask them maybe even a couple of months later, certainly by the time that they've started to get very weak and they may be spending more and more of their time in bed, for example, at that point, their answers might be very different and they might have a very different view of their, their illness and what they want. So unfortunately, a lot of our systems don't have that flexibility and you know what that's one of the things that actually attracted me to specialist palliative care was the ability to be able to not i mean there's certainly not not endless resources or endless time in specialist palliative care by any manner of beans but i do think generally our approaches are better in terms of that communication and giving people that that time and space and making sure people have the information that they need to make decisions 
And, you know, actually, that's that's a really good point, Sean. And that got me thinking. You, you sort of preempted a question I, I have for Julia, actually, in that regard. And actually, it's 20 years ago today that my brother died and I'd never heard of palliative care until he was in the process. And it was sort of, for me, became a real jewel in the crown, something I thought was absolutely amazing and, and centred on the human person and alleviating suffering. You know, that was very close to my heart at that time. And what I want to pick up on what you've said there, Sean, with you, Julia, is that sort of having time, especially if your viewpoint evolves a bit about, for instance, whether you want to die at home or in a hospice or in a hospital, how does it work in an emergency situation where potentially, obviously, it's great that the data is shared, but what if you suddenly think, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I can handle this at home. I'm now sort of very scared about being at home in these these sort of last hours, minutes. How, how do you cope with the emergency situation and potential mind changes? I think people all change their minds. We all do for all sorts of things, let alone for something as big as dying. And that's the blessing of having a digital plan because you can change it as often as you want to and whenever you want to. The whole issue is about having a plan that is guidance to the professionals. And it, because it's a guidance to the professionals, at the point of impact, they may overturn it. It's unlikely, but they may overturn it because it may just be, you may tell them and you may be in sound mind to tell them. But if you have lost mental capacity, the guidance will tell them what you wanted when you had capacity. So it's a bit like a birthing plan. New mums have a birthing plan. Let's, for example, say they wanted to have a water birth and comes the time of the delivery and the obstetrician thinks this can't work for reasons A, B, and C. They knew that's what you wanted. They advise you that it's probably not advisable and you change your mind. But the difference in dying people is that if they've lost mental capacity, and it's very important to know what they wanted when they had capacity. So, you know, if I was Minister of Health, I would make everyone have a plan that they can change every day, every year, every decade, whatever suits them. But the health service should know what, as individuals, we want. You know, I'm fit and well, but I don't want to be resuscitated. I've had a very, very good life. And my faith is more important to me than anything else. And if my God chooses to take me today, well, so be it. That is very different to my neighbor or the person down the street. But why should my wishes and preferences not be respected from my culture, my belief, and what's really important to me? And unless someone asks me, they won't know. And unless they document it and share it, the people that are called in an emergency won't know. So the most important thing is to share in an emergency the guidance. But as I say, it's guidance. It can always be overturned. And, and just quickly picking up on that, do you think that's because the NHS sees sort of maybe things that aren't quite so tangible, like faith and spirituality, as, as important as the sort of clinical and medical? Yeah, because it's run by... Doctors and nurses in a secular world, which is becoming increasingly secular. But also the NHS is a very reactive service. 
you know, you break your arm, you go to A&E, you get it fixed, you come out. Mm -hmm. It's reactive. We're all trained to be reactive professionals. It's not sexy to plan. No one wants to plan. It takes time. But in the long run, we've shown very clearly it takes less time and it puts less demands on the service. But you have to pay to play, so to speak. So the part that is required is to sit down with the patient and have these discussions or they do it themselves and then come to you. Professionals don't like talking about dying. They like reactive medicine. This is not reactive. And they do not like talking about dying because we spend our whole careers trying to stop people dying. So you are battling against a tsunami against you in the wrong direction in terms of getting patients who are dying what they need and want. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and Sean, coming on to you, because I know you touched upon a lot of this in your research. I've seen a fairly early version, I believe, of, of that research. But nonetheless, I mean, what did you find when scraping those forums from 2003 to 2020 when it comes to people's attitudes and, and how they feel? You know, I know obviously there's a pandemic at the end of that period of time. But what, what did you find about those less clinical and more person led desires of people? Yes, so the research that I've been undertaking with the Centre for the Art of Dying Well, I mean, it's just really what what's come out of that really corresponds so well with with what Julia said. You know, we, as you said, analyze data from internet online forums, which were used and set up by people with life limiting illness and their loved ones, and we analyze data from a period of over thirteen years to think about how dying people are grieving people, how they experience what we call medicalization of death and grief through online internet forums. So I suppose by medicalization has really been well, actually quite described very well by Julia already, but really the way that mainstream healthcare is set up in a way which, well, sees death as a failure, avoids acknowledging death openly, and also really kind of views people as being kind of a list of medical problems instead of taking a holistic approach to that whole person. What we found through the research is that internet forums provide such an important role for people who use them in kind of making up for the inadequacies in mainstream healthcare systems or mainstream bereavement care systems. So they actually you know, allow people to get support that they wouldn't be necessarily able to elsewhere and allow them to share sources of, of personal comfort for them as well. And that's very much sharing things like spirituality and religious sources of comfort, which aren't necessarily acknowledged properly or acknowledged at all by medical approaches to dying people. And through forums to experience support and comfort for a long period of time, without there really being a cutoff point because people can access them whenever they want 24 hours a day whereas actually what's available elsewhere might be you know grief counseling for example for a limited number of months where people actually grieve for long long periods of time but beyond that as well as being sources of support we find that actually the forums themselves actually became solutions for people um in the in the challenges and the difficulties that they encountered trying to get adequate end-of-life care or trying to get adequate information. And they led to people 
feeling more empowered. They allowed people to share information with one another on things like benefits or legal rights, which might not be easily accessible in other ways. And also gave people advice on what to ask for from a doctor or when you're seeing another healthcare professional. The data shows quite clearly that people feel that healthcare systems, mainstream healthcare systems, are really quite experiencing quite a negative way, something that they have to actually actively work against and actively have to find solutions in order to get what they need out of them. But actually, these forums provided solutions for people circumventing these problems. But overall, you know, thinking about this from the perspective of a doctor, I think, you know, you might go to work and see see your patients and at the end of the day think, oh, I diagnosed those problems. I prescribed all the right medication. I did everything technically correct. But actually to look at this data that comes from patients and their their loved ones and see that actually their perception of healthcare encounters is totally different. Things saying, I don't feel listened to. I don't feel that people see my whole situation. I don't think people are listening to me. Yes, of course, those technical aspects are important. Having the right medication is important. But actually, there's so much more about who I am as a person, which matters to me. Um, And it does include spirituality, as Julie's spoken about. And also another interesting uh, finding which came up regularly in the data was um, how important animal companions were to people who are dying and their loved ones as well. The Art of Dying Well podcast is available on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more. Just search on your preferred platform. And so without being negative, because I can really see the benefits of using data um, for, for the good of the person and, and to empower the person so they can actually make their own choices. But do you think there's any sort of tension in this, particularly these days post-pandemic, when there's a little bit of a heightened fear of data sharing and privacy and other things? Um, are people, Julia, worried about who holds their sensitive data and who they're sharing it with? Because you talked about the positivity of sharing data, but does that come with a downside as in where is my data and who's got their hands on it? Yes, without doubt. In fact, safety and security of their data is one of the big feedback we have. Less so in the young. And during COVID, more young people created plans than pre-COVID because they suddenly thought, oh, well, you know, I'd quite like to create my own plan. But I think it's a very, very real thing because you are putting very personal data onto a platform. And from a safety and security point of view, you need to be absolutely sure if you are writing your data and writing your personalized plans that they are protected and secure. I mean, obviously, I work for the NHS and we built a security system around and ensured data protection. So on our platform, people's data are are protected. But, you know, I think that has to be a really, really, really important thing when we're talking to patients to say this is a safe place. They need to know that when they've poured their heart and soul out and told their most special needs and particularly when they've died what they want to say they need to know their data are being very sensitively handed and very very safely kept and sean 
you talked about animals as well and spirituality. What did you learn about people in terms of, you know, again, non-medical solutions per se to their journey to grief and to other things? How come animals was a specific focus in that? I think, I mean, I guess for me as a doctor, animals really exemplifies kind of perfectly how much the medical model and our medicalized approach to thinking about dying people and even grief doesn't really meet the mark. You know, I mean, I suppose it's interesting to think about what if you're seeing a patient who on paper you might describe as a complex medical patient with uh, polypharmacy, which means they're on lots of lots of different medications, which possibly have interactions with one another, making things even more, even more complicated. And you think, right, what can I prescribe or what procedure can I do to make things different for this patient? But actually, from that patient's point of view, what they might want is to see their dog. (laughs) And really, uh, I mean, I guess it's about trying to take a step back and think humanely, I suppose, think about that, that being human. And I do think that this is something that in specialist palliative care, we are quite good at, but I suppose... It's about, I suppose, going forward in terms of trying to think about solutions and to make things better in our systems so that people do feel more empowered. It's challenging and there's not any one, I don't think there's any one simple solution that can be offered. I think, I mean, a lot of it is probably about resource and investment. I mean, I could go and do, you know, a a teaching or training session in a local hospital and say to the doctors and nurses there, oh, you really have to spend longer with your patients getting to know them as as people. But that's all well and good if there's not actually the resource to back that up. But I suppose what we kind of hope through, you know, we've, we've spoken about data. I think generally one of the perceived problems with palliative care is that we don't have enough data and we don't have enough of an evidence base or certainly the same kind of evidence base compared to other areas of of healthcare. But I suppose it's actually building up data and having research findings to actually be able to make these arguments for investment in care, basically. What we're really talking about is care. I think we have a way to go. I mean, I still hope that, you know, the research that I've been doing through the centre can contribute to that. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. I did want to change track slightly. And Julia, what concerns me a little bit is, I suppose, economics in a way. And I think to myself, well, if I make a decision on my my end of life care, am I going to do it based upon what I can afford, potentially, rather than what is best for me? And, And maybe I'm talking a little bit here beyond death, as in planning for a funeral, planning for a final resting place or whatever else it may be. Do you find people actually perhaps don't make a, if you like, genuine decision based upon what they want, but more upon what they can afford? That is such an interesting perception. And the reason it's so interesting is many years ago, I set up a service at the hospital called Hospital to Home where we ask patients what they want. And when I got together the group to do this, the perception of the professionals was, don't ask them, we can't afford it. The more you offer, the more they want. And to everybody's surprise, it was the complete 
opposite. When people come to dying, what they want is very simple. And to me, the fascination is they wanted far less people in their homes to care for them. They wanted far fewer people to be dropping off meals and coming to do interventions and coming to do this. They wanted a plain, simple, gentle, peaceful way, which cost the health service less. And we did health economic data to show very clearly that what people want and ask for is less costly than we think their needs are and we think we should deliver to their doorstep, which is a very interesting thing because all of our perceptions were the other way around. And the other thing just about animals, there's the most extraordinary thing about the healing power of animals before people die, when they do die. And they say that dogs can smell grief, they can smell sadness, they can smell depression. They're very consoling. They don't argue back. They just listen. They take everything in. And so patients and grieving people can cry, they can let it out, and there's a constant consoling companion with them. It was exemplified by George Bush. In America, they have grieving dogs. And when Barbara Bush died, a grieving dog who had done his service for another patient, the grieving Labrador was brought to George Bush. And I don't know if you ever remember seeing the photograph of George Bush's coffin with this golden Labrador lying next to him, like a devoted servant. He'd only been with him since the grief of Barbara Bush and had become a completely devoted dog to his master. And, you know, it's a love and it's a devotion which is exemplified in human love and devotion. But if you don't have human love and devotion, or even if you do, it's good to have what animals give. And I've just seen countless times of complete devotion both ways. And the comfort is enormous. It really is enormous. Yeah, I can imagine, actually. I think my, my favourite 10 minutes of the day, although I shouldn't say this in front of my wife, I suppose, but it's it's having that, that 10 minutes with the French bulldog who all he wants to do is cuddle, really. It's quite sweet, I must say. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. And that's 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 medicine in itself, wouldn't you say, Sean? I mean, is it that human side of companionship, of caring, of being in solidarity with others on on forums and elsewhere? Is is it that side that that you find is in need of literally a shot in the arm? Yes, and I mean, I think for me, I mean, actually, it's it's been thinking about these issues, you know, during my career, which actually originally led me down the route of palliative care why I wanted to go to palliative care in the first place because I felt that you know health systems were disempowering for patients and their loved ones and also I felt disempowered also as a doctor from being able to provide the care that I wanted to provide and I think when you're so kind of ingrained in a certain way of thinking the way that you know mainstream medical care just kind of doesn't really acknowledge the human or or the emotions that all becomes kind of normalized insofar as the people who are in that system think it's normal and so that just gets kind of continued and perpetuated and you know if i can i think back to an experience i had when i was a very junior doctor in a and e 
I remember it so clearly. This elderly patient had come into A&E and was with his grown-up children. And the patient was very ill and was very close to the end of their lives. And I remember being with the consultant and the consultant telling the patient this and their loved ones this. And the patient's children were very upset and very distressed and they were showing their emotion externally. They were expressing how they were feeling. And that was, to me, seems a a completely natural and understandable and reasonable reaction. But I mean, I will always remember this. We came out of that area and recess in A&E and the consultant made eye contact with two of the nurses and just said, pathetic, and walked away. And I mean, I think, I mean, I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I think it's really in that moment I felt like, yeah, I'm definitely not like you. Whatever way you are, that is not the way that I want to be as a doctor. I mean, that was an extreme example, which demonstrates how in some cases and sometimes healthcare and our healthcare workers can lose lose their grip on the importance of being human and especially when it comes to palliative care scenarios or people approaching the end of life so I think that that was definitely a kind of a landmark moment for me and starting my thought process towards palliative care and interest in care of the dying but you know I do think you know I've mentioned this already but a lot of what we're talking about here I keep saying palliative care, but a lot of what we're talking about, I think, is just care, really. And yes, obviously, when it comes to people who are have a diagnosis for life-limiting illness, yes, there are things that are specific to that situation. And yes, there are, for example, medications that we would only prescribe to people in that situation. Of course, there's that technical aspect. But also broader than that is the entire holistic approach that we're taking. The holistic approach that we take in hospices, for example, where we spend time with people where we give people good, tasty food, where we have communication and we give people space to do art and other things that they enjoy. And we maybe speak to someone about something quite serious over a number of days and give them lots of time to digest the information and to take that information in and meet with them with their families and check that we're all on the same page. Something that I I struggle with is that I, I think everyone deserves that. It should be available to everyone, whether or not you, you get access to a hospice or really actually, you know, if you're a patient full stop, regardless of whether you have a diagnosis of a life-limiting illness, I think it's what everyone deserves. Yeah, I like that, Sean. I particularly like the way you said it's really care, you know, palliative care, it's care. Now, look, final question to both of you. Sean, I'll stay with you and then Julia for the final word. So, Sean... With all this in mind, everything we've spoken about, all your learning, not just from the research, but obviously, as you've just shared, your your working life as well, the the rich uh, working life that you've had. If someone is saying, listen to me, I'm dying, what would your advice be to them to just sort of have it their way or regain control or feel a little bit more valued in that process? I think, first of all, they've done the right thing by recognizing that they need to be listened to. I guess it goes back to the phrase we say all the time, going back to what Cicely Saunders said, you matter because you are you and you matter until the end of your life. It's still the case that you're still a valuable person who should be listened to and should have autonomy, quite literally right up until your last breath, really. So recognizing that, having that confidence in that fact, because that is a fact, 
But, you know, I think what other practical things you can do would be to see what other kind of sources of support are around you to give you information and to help you feel empowered. So that might be making, organizing or asking your healthcare professional if you can meet with them with your trusted loved ones present with you. Or maybe if you want to meet with your doctor, but there's another member of the multidisciplinary team, someone else who's working in your healthcare, who you think could support you like a social worker to bring them along as well. And, you know, very topical to what I've been researching with the center, thinking about what what other sources of support there are as well. For example, online forums. Are there communities out there on social media where you can put out questions you can say I've got a doctor's appointment next week I've got to go into the clinic I'm in this situation I don't really know what to expect or what kind of things I could be asking and there's there will be people who've been in this situation before to be able to give you support and give you some ideas I mean those are the things that come to mind in answer to your question excellent and Julie a final word for you and and a twist on the question a similar question really so I mean, I was, you know, it sort of took my breath away a bit when Sean mentioned the doctor that came out and said pathetic. And I think we'd all acknowledge that the NHS and and 99.9% of medical professionals care about their patients, care about the end and, and the journey towards the end. But what would you suggest are the ways that we can put put the human, the humanity back into this process at the end of life? Well, I love the question, listen to me, I'm dying. That's how we bring the humanity back into the process because every single one of us is dying and every single one of us should right this moment in time say, listen to me, I am dying. Because by saying that, you process in your head and your heart, how do I want my life to end? And it's only when people appreciate that we're dying that they really begin to live. And I've looked after over 50,000 patients who've died. And one thing I have said so many times is how you live is how you die. And there are very few exceptions. So if you appreciate your own dying, you may start to live in a different way. So I think everyone should say, listen to me, I'm dying and then start planning how to really live and live well. What a fantastic way to end. And I'm, I'm quite glad I chose that title now. Seems to, <laughs> seems to match with all we've said. So Dr. Sean Qureshi, Professor Julia Riley, thank you for sharing all your experience, your research, your, your humanity, because it, it sort of will all stand in a better place if, if we keep the human at the centre of everything. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodness me, what an interesting discussion that was. And to be able to draw on the expertise of two end-of-life specialists to examine just how we go about taking back a little bit of control over how our life ends. Let's take it from Professor Julia Riley, who, as she says, has helped over 50,000 dying people in her work. Her calling, I think you could say. It's only when we appreciate we're dying we all are, that we can really begin to live our lives. 
Great contribution too from Dr. Sean Qureshi, making his first appearance on the podcast, fascinating research, and a doctor who clearly values the human being and seeks to bring that humanity to end-of-life care. Well, I feel very uplifted by that and will certainly look into having a plan for the end of my life after hearing from Julia and Sean. I do hope you've got something out of our discussion too. Remember, you can find us on all major podcasting platforms. Just search for The Art of Dying Well podcast. And why not share it with friends and family too, especially if you think they'll get something out of it, of course. Right, that's it from me. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. And I'll look forward to being with you for another Art of Dying Well podcast very soon indeed. Take care.